It can be found on page 946 of the Bible's Next Year Seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's Word. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is it as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? the crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, as we um, look to these words and we look to learn from them or for them to speak to us, we come with a full awareness of our need. We come... Um, needing love maybe this morning, maybe we come needing challenge. Um, We come needing comfort perhaps amidst grief and struggle and um, more bad news, or we come in need of um, a chance to voice our gratitude to you because you have provided or you have been so clearly unmistakably present in our life. We come from all different kinds of places, but there is the universal need. We are more of a mess than we care to admit. We hide it quite effectively, but we can't hide it from you. We are more of a mess than we care to admit. And we might even try to hide it from you because we're afraid. We're afraid of what you might think or what might happen to us in your story that we have entered into this morning, the Advent story, 
is of a God who arrives and who moves towards us. And that's no small thing because you're moving towards broken lives, failed lives, people whose intentions are good but whose actions are flimsy at best. We have um, a very unstable devotion to you even when we are attempting to have devotion to you. And your answer is to move towards us in the striking, radical love of your son Jesus to take on all of what we might fear and take it on for us so that we might have what we could only dream. We pray that that kind of grace would arrive in our hearts this Advent and come through these words in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you look at the... um, If you look at the worship guide, there's a place that has reflections, and there's uh, two of them, and they they sort of say the opposite thing, basically, because you have Martin Luther in his 95 theses that he nailed on that Wittenberg door uh, in the 1500s. You have him saying, as the first thesis was, the whole life of believers should be repentance. All of life is repentance. Martin Luther then you have this, this poem, this uh, part of this poem by Lord Byron that says within it, the weak alone repent. Well, which is it? Is all of life repentance? Is that the best possible life? Or is that a weak life? Is that a... What's more reflective of the culture that surrounds us? Which one of those? All of life is Repentance. The weak alone repent. Which one better describes the people you spent your day with yesterday? Let's get real personal, right? Which one best describes the family you grew up in? Which one's closer to your family motto growing up? The weak alone repent. All of life is repentance. What about those you went to college with? Your old college friends. What about your neighbors, your coworkers? Which one's closer to home? Repentance. John the Baptist comes with repentance. We might like to think, as he comes preaching, repent. We might like to think, well, that's good old John the Baptist. You know, he's he's really weird. You can't trust him too much. He's what did it was he wearing camel hair and eating locusts in the desert? I mean, all right, he had a few weird things to say. But if you move through Scripture, actually, you have the message of repentance coming from the Old Testament prophets. You do have John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. With the main, His main message was repent. But as you go on and on, you see that Jesus comes. In Matthew chapter 4, we read that he, went, he was going around everywhere preaching repentance. Then you have him sending the twelve out. And what were they going out? They were going from town to town saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Then you have... Read about Peter. What was Peter doing in Acts chapter 2? Pentecost. He's preaching to everyone, and what does he say? What's the punchline? Repent. Then we have the Apostle Paul. I mean, you just keep going. The Apostle Paul, at the end of the book of Acts, in chapter 17 and chapter 26, what is he preaching? Repent. You get to Jesus, the glorified Jesus in the book of Revelation, and what is he saying to these churches in the letters in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation? Repent. Turn around, make a U-turn, change, radical, 
change, a life of radical U-turns and change. Apparently, if we don't have repentance in our life, we're missing something very essential. Not a very popular message, not a very exciting message this morning, um, trying to match the mood of the, the wind and the rain out there, I guess. But we're basically saying today, got repentance? You have it? And as we explore that, even further, do you have the grace of repentance? Do you have the fire of repentance? And do you have the question of repentance in your life? Let's look at these three things as a way to get into got repentance. Do you have the grace of repentance? I want to start with that because we are so terrified of the idea of someone saying, repent. I can't actually see you very well. This light's shining right in my eyes. So if it looks like I'm looking at you. I'm not, but maybe you need that feeling. I don't know. <laughs> repent, right? How does that feel? Well, notice in, cha- in chapter 3, verse 3, it says that John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Notice also that as scary as some of this stuff is in this passage, like there's a threshing floor and he's going to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. (laughs) Catch that juxtaposition right there. Good news. This is a message of good news. So maybe we have some figuring out to do. John Calvin, the other uh, big name in the Reformation, he wrote about repentance. And his idea was that repentance is full of grace, that it's all about grace. He says, the foundation of repentance is the mercy of God. Well, how, how can that be? He goes on to say it this way. Indeed, without hatred of sin and remorse for transgressions, no one will taste the grace of God. And then he does this interesting thing. So, so grace and repentance are interrelated, and he gets into kind of uh, maybe the chronology or the order of how they're related. And he says this, um, And I love some of the little tonality things that you get in this era of church history. It's a little bit harsh at times, but he says, Repentance is not placed first, as some ignorantly suppose, as if it were the ground of the forgiveness of sins, or as if it induced God to begin to be gracious to us. But we are commanded to repent that we may receive the reconciliation which is offered to us. So his his message is, Grace comes first, induces us to repent, and yet the way he talks about it, the way the Bible talks about it, is that repentance is this way to access God's grace. It's a way to unlock God's grace so that you could say, you could believe in grace and you could say like a good reformer like John Calvin or Martin Luther, you know, this Protestant reformation based on by grace alone. Um, you could say, I believe that, you, that God only operates with us through grace, and it's by grace alone that one might be saved, to quote Scripture. But if that's just, 
If, if you're not repenting, if repentance isn't a part of your journey, then that's just an abstract theological thought. You haven't experienced the grace. You haven't experienced it. You haven't unlocked the door. So a Christian who knows this um, practices repentance on purpose, shapes a life around repentance, so that that door to God's grace is open as often as you possibly can get it open, and it's flooding your life. God's grace is flooding your life. So that if you look at the, um, the daily office in the old Book of Common Prayer, which is this, this, usually it's a blue book with a bunch of tassels in it, and you flip from place to place if you do it every day. And there's a morning and an evening prayer time that it guides you in. And if you do that regularly, it's a, it's a cool way to shape your prayer life. And if you do that regularly, you'll find that what you're doing is in the morning you're doing this prayer time, and at night you're doing this prayer time, and both of them include a prayer of confession. But if you think about that kind of in reverse, if you get to the end of the day and you say this prayer of confession where you maybe are recalling the day, but then you get up in the morning and right away the first thing you do is you say another prayer of confession for your sins. What are we doing? What, what is that? Isn't that redundant? Isn't that silly? You, you, the only thing you might have done in between is just sleep. Why are you confessing? You know, isn't that one in the evening kind of like clear the slate, clear the decks? And then the next day, you know, give it some time before I have to say one of those prayers of confession again. Well, there's a logic to it, in fact, and that is that you shape, you're shaping your life around repentance. You begin and you end the day. The whole, the whole day is a day of repentance, a life of repentance, that the door might be open for this grace to flood in. So you, so you do an act of repentance like confession as often as possible. Because repentance is where you get grace. It's a tool. It's like, it's like you want to have this great meal and you want to have it with friends. So what do you do? You set the table so that it can happen. That's like, that's like repentance. It's like setting the table for grace to happen. So do you have the grace of repentance? Very important to start with that. And secondly, maybe you say, oh, here's the good part, fire. Do you have the fire of repentance? One of the fun things about this scripture memory that we've been doing and doing it at home with children is that you, it's this very nice Advent-type um, passage. The people are waiting expectantly. Is John the Messiah? No, someone more powerful. And then you get to the end, and he will come baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire, <laughs> you know? In one, in one sense, it's like really exciting with kids in my house to, to talk about that. It's also a little bit scary. Like, you know, it's a little bit like, how do, okay, what's going on there? What does it mean, right? What does it mean? He's coming with fire. There's, there's, in this passage, there's an axe at the root of a tree. It's going to be chopped down, I think. There's chaff that needs to be burned up from the threshing floor. There's a fork and there's, I mean, this is, ah, what does this all mean? Repentance? Fire? Well, um, culturally speaking, we are afraid of that. We've basically, and maybe this is why, basically we've um, unfriended and unfollowed the practice of repentance in our culture. In, in our day and age, um, Repentance maybe used to be optional, and now it's no longer an option. And so we find ourselves maybe mirroring best um, something that Martin Luther once said, to quote him again. He said, some people stare at the doctrine of repentance 
like a cow stares blinkingly at a new gate. <laughs> what is he talking about? You know, there's not this knowing laughter because you're not all farmers and cattle ranchers. You're like, tell us, please tell us what that means. That means nothing. <laughs> but a cow doesn't get it. A cow doesn't understand what that is. What, there's a new thing. There's a thing there. I don't get it. What is that? That's how we. That's our posture. What is that? Repent. What are you talking about? And some of that perhaps comes from this, the fire part, the fire of repentance. It's, it's fiery. And I would say that even, I would put it this far, that I think all of us, I think it's universal whether we admit it or not, that all of us at some deep level know that there is sin to be dealt with, that we have sin to be dealt with. And there's a part of us that, even if we're not voicing it, we wish it could be dealt with. But part of what's happening is we're so terrified of getting burned in the process. Is that you a little bit? You know, we've got this thing called Burning Man. People go, you know about Burning Man in August, at the end of August, they go out to the 50,000 people, 60,000 people, keeps growing every year, and you pay your money. To what, I think it costs almost $300 to go or something. And you go out to the desert at the very end of it, this big, long, spiritual and cultural experiment. They burn an effigy of the man. It's a work of art, but then it's burned. Fire. And, and it's this powerful night. It's the big, climactic night. And many, many of the people there describe it as a spiritual experience. And there's a man who goes every year and has been going every year. And during that last evening, that monumental evening in the experience of all of these burners, is that what they're called? I think that's what they're called. Um, He walks around to as many people as he can and he looks them in the eye and he says this, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And of course, people, that was my fault. <laughs> Just kicked that. Of course, people, they melt. It's not your fault. They, it, it just, some people just begin just sobbing. And just there's a hug. And it's, it's like this is his ministry every year. It's not your fault. Why is that so powerful? I would say it's so powerful because everyone... When, when that man walks around Burning Man and says to everyone, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, everyone knows deep down there's stuff. There's stuff that they're chewing on and is it my fault and what's my fault and where's my fault? And, and it's eating away at us. And it's some of the biggest drama and trauma of our lives. Some of you are dealing with stuff this week and you're going, I don't know if, that this is, if, if I'm at fault here or where I've messed up in the past. Okay. So just keep following me here. We own at our house. Do you see in this passage how there's, a, there's an axe at the base of a tree? We own at our house. We have an axe in by all the tools in the shed. And we have a hatchet. So every once in a while, it's really fun with kids that, that these get to come out. The kids are mis- just, just enthralled with these tools. They're, they're these epic tools. And I let them sometimes, you know, with some guidance play with them or help me, help me, right, help, <laughs> help me chop some wood. 
or hit it on something. And, but I'm very careful because what you want to do with an axe is you want to spread your legs apart and chop in the middle. At least that's what I tell them. Um, get your legs as far as you can apart and keep it going straight down in the middle because you don't want to have part of your body in the way of where that axe is going. You don't want to chop your foot off. John the Baptist, as he says, there's an axe at the tree, as he's, you know, he's kind of fiery, and, you know, there's going to be burning, and the axe is at the tree, and there's fire, and one come in after me is way more powerful than me, and he's got, he's really going to bring the fire. You get the sense, if you know the whole story of Jesus, you get the sense John was not let in on how the ministry of Jesus was going to go. He knew how, he knew who this was that was coming. He knew the level of justice and righteousness, and he knew the level of judgment that this one has the power and is in his nature to bring. But the big surprise is that the axe, that Jesus, the fire, the wrath, the axe comes in on himself so that we don't have to bear it. So, do you have the fire of repentance? Maybe it's better to say, do you understand what's been done with the fire that John is bringing us all, it's bringing into our life, he's making us pay attention to, and we should, we should understand the level of fault that's at work. Um, you know, John says, looks out at these people and says, just to all of them. He doesn't, I don't know, I don't get the sense he's pointing fingers at one or two. You brood of vipers, <laughs> he says. The Christian who gets what Jesus has done with the fire and the axe says, yes, that's me. I'm in with the snakes. I'm crafty. I'm on the wrong side of justice. I'm on the wrong side of judgment. And Jesus has come and taken it on. Let the axe fall on himself. That's what the Christian says. Now, doesn't that feel... Now, let me circle back because you're wondering what I'm doing with the burning man thing. Doesn't that feel a little more robust than just telling you to deal with all that inner sense of fault and justice and just to say, it's not your fault? Doesn't that feel like it's gone through this, a little more of the legitimate steps needed to say, no, you're a part of it, you carry some fault, but guess what? Guess what Jesus has done? And then the question, so do you have the grace of repentance? Do you have the fire of repentance? And do you know what's been done with that fire? And do you have the question of repentance? Because there is a question, and it's repeated three times. And when you're in the Bible and something's repeated in a story three times, you, you're supposed to wake up because it's, it's bold, italicized, and underlined when these people all ask the same question. First in verse 10, what should we do then? Verse 12, the tax collectors. Teacher, what should we do? Verse 14, the soldiers. And what should we do? That's the question of repentance. That's the question of repentance. You can look at your life and say, is that kind of question, does that, do I embody that question? You might be really good at repenting if you embody that question. You know, there's a cartoon. It's an old cartoon that uh, embodies this question. Maybe you can relate. The cartoon is of a skeptic shouting up at the sky, looking up and saying, God, if you're up there, tell us what we should do. 
And the voice comes back. Feed the hungry, house the homeless, establish justice. The skeptic looks alarmed. Just testing, he says. Me too, replies the voice. There's a famous poem, Invictus, by W.E. Henley, and it ends like this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. You know, no matter how many preachers stand up here and talk about the straight gate, no matter how many punishments are read by religious people from a scroll, I am the captain. I'm the master of my fate. Well, that goes, that, that is what we're surrounded by. Those could be talked about as, as you know, whether you're the skeptic and you kind of, well, I, I, know, I, I know justice and I know feeding and I know all those good things are kind of the right way to go. I've got great intentions about it, but if someone actually ends up calling me on it and asking me to, am I doing anything about it? Well, then I'm just testing. You know, I know the right answers, but I'm the captain of my soul. Right? Isn't that what we're taught to do? And then this passage models the people who are listening, the people who are getting it, the people who are repenting are just all saying the same thing. What, what do I do? What do I do? What should I do? What if, has your spiritual journey led you into a place where you're asking that kind of question? Is that the, is that the climax of your spiritual journey? In, in the Christian tradition, we call that growth. When you come to the place of saying, what do I do? I don't know what to do. But we're not very good at that. We're the captain of our own fate. It's a really scary way to think about repentance, that repentance is going to involve, if this, you know, maybe you said, oh yeah, regular practice of repentance, that sounds good. Okay, I can make all of life. Well, does it sound as good when I say that it might mean admitting that you don't know what to do? A lot. That's repentance. That's the question of repentance. That's where it leads us. Um, to be people who are comfortable in that place. But it, but it can't be, you know, one of, the, one of the greatest dangers about a sermon on, on repentance is that it would remain in our lives very rhetorical. You know, you know that sounded good, preacher. Thank you very much. I'm going to think on that. I'm going to stew on that. I'm going to incorporate it in my private little life. This, there's a sense in the Bible that repentance is always a conversation that involves Real words said out loud to real people in real places about, I guess, real sins. <laughs> Do, are, is it going to be real for you? Is it going to have flesh and bones on it for you, this practice of repentance? As you prepare the way for the Lord, as you open up your life and the doors to God's grace to flood in, let us pray. Our God of grace, May you uh, help us where we need help. And I think more than anything else, we need help in this area. We need help to transition from being the, the captains and the masters of our own life and our own fate. Make it real. Make it tangible. Give us a strength that we don't even have to do the hard work of letting you turn our ship around. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.